We are in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, looking at the rest of chapter 2, verses 12 through verses 32, the end of the chapter. I'll mention verse 1 in chapter 3, but that's really what we're looking at. If you remember, 2 Samuel is about the reign and the life of King David, the second beloved king of Israel. If you remember, 2 Samuel opened up with David. He's not king yet. He's mourning over the death of the first king of Israel, Saul. He's mourning over the death of his good covenant friend, Jonathan. He's mourning over all of Israel. That's how the book opens. Last week, we looked at chapter 2, and we recognize or we realize that although David has been told by God, given the promise that he will be king over Israel, David, rather than taking his place as the rightful king, when he finds out the king is dead, not only does he mourn and spends time mourning, he doesn't assume his rightful place. The first thing David does is inquire of the Lord. Tells us something about David. He knows he's king. He knows he's going to be king. But he's inquiring of the Lord. He says, where do I go from here, Lord? Remember, he was presently in a territory of the Philistines. He was in enemy territory when he hears that Saul is dead. And God speaks to David. God tells David to go to Hebron, a city, Hebron, a city in Judah. It's the place where Abraham and Sarah were buried. Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah buried. There's a, a, a sense of, of, of rich covenantal remembrance in that place. Go there, he tells them. David packs his bags, takes his wives. The army is about 600 men with him. And so you're talking maybe a couple of thousand people and their families, right? And they go to the city that God has told them to go. And then we saw in chapter 2 a very, very important monumental event. David is then anointed and crowned as king of Judah. And for the very first time in chapter 2, verse 7, there is a king, the anointed king, the king that God has chosen. Not Israel, but God has chosen in Israel is a visible reigning king God's king ruling on earth. It was a small gathering compared to what will be in chapter 5 when he's anointed king over all of Israel. But for now, he's king of one tribe. If you don't know this, Israel has 12 tribes. David is king over Judah, one of the tribes, the southern tribe of the land. He, he himself is from the tribe of Judah. He's, a, he's king over his own tribe. And after his anointing as king, David hears that Jabesh Gilead was the ones who rescued the body of Saul. If you remember, he was murdered, his head was cut off, him and his sons, and they were impaled upon a wall. And the men and women of Jabesh, well, the men, the army of Jabesh Gilead, they do a 20-mile journey and a covert operation, I guess, at night, and they take the bodies down, they give Saul and his sons a burial, at least they burn them, because they want, they want infection, and we don't know, and they give the bones of a burial. David blesses them. David says, I, I've heard what you did. I, may the Lord, he says um, in verse 6, may the Lord show you steadfast love for this loyalty you've shown to the king. May, may you, the people of Jabesh Gilead, be blessed by God 
verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. Turn there with me. Verse 5. May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and you buried him. Verse 6. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. In other words, David is praying that the steadfast love has said, the love, the loyal love of God be upon them and that David is saying, and you're going to receive that through me. I'm going to do this for you as king of Israel. And he invites them to come. Come join me. Come join us as king of Judah. We don't hear much of the narrative after that. What happened, we're not really sure. But as soon as David is anointed, look with me at verse 8 of chapter 2, there is opposition. There is opposition. There's those who stand against God's promise, God's will, God's ways, as soon as God anoints his king. That should tell you something, right? So when you wake up one day and you're, and you're, and you're saying, I'm going to serve the Lord, me and my family or myself, I'm going to serve the Lord, I'm going to follow the promises and the plans of God, expect opposition. Expect it. There will be opposition. Verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2 gives us the beginning of what's going to take place over the next couple of chapters. You see, Abner, he's the commander of Saul's army. He took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, brought him to Mahanaim. I know you got to be a redneck to say that, I think. Mahanaim. Sorry. Verse 9 And he made him king over Gilead, Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and all of Israel. See what's happening? There's opposition to the chosen king due to Abner's selfish human ambition, his selfish motivation, his pride in the face of God's promise to David, to God's people. Pride will do that. Pride will do that. I heard about a pastor who was on his way home, turned to his wife, trying to get some compliments. My wife's not here, so she can't say, yeah, I know that. What do you think of my sermon, honey? Well, how did it go? She wasn't really committal. You know, she didn't want to say too much. It was fine. The pastor wouldn't let it go. Well, on the way out, so-and-so said it was not only great, it was one, I'm one of the greatest preachers of our generation. <laughs> Still no response. The piece to push. How many people, how many great preachers do you think there are in this generation? She said one less than you think, that's for sure. <laughs> Pride will do that. Pride will push, pride will push, pride will push, right? Pride will push. So chapter 2, verses 12 through 32, really is all about that. It's about pride. It's about Abner, we'll see, taking the center stage. One of uh, David's nephews will take the center stage and want things to go in their way. So that's what chapter 2, verses 12 through 32 is all about. It's ugly. I'm going to tell you right now, it's ugly. It's about civil war. And that's, that's kind of our outline. So we'll look at the challenge that took place within the civil war. We'll look at the chase that pursued because of the challenge. And then we'll end with the concession. There, there, it ends okay, and then it gets bad again next week. Two weeks, it's just going to be a lot of killing, and it's pretty, it's pretty rough. So turn with me to verse 12, chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord, the infallible, authoritative word of God. We'll read verses 12 through 17. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 17. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. 
And they sat down, the one, the army, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over the number, 12 for Benjamin, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Maybe representing 12 tribes, I'm not really sure, but there was 12. Verse 16, and each caught his opponent by the head and thrusted his sword in his opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon, was at Gibeah. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. God had a blessing to the reading of that portion of his word. Now, before we get into this tragedy, before we get into the Civil War, let me just give you some context. If you have your Bibles open, hopefully you have one. There are still Bibles, by the way, in the back. If you don't have one, you go grab one. Um, Put this in context. Look with me quickly at chapter 2, verse 10. And there's something I want you to see. Chapter 2, verse 10 says this. Ishbosheth, the son, Saul's son, who is now king of Israel, the other 11 tribes, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah, that's that single tribe to the south, the house of Judah, followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron, Hebron, over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, you see that? What the narrator is telling us is that Abner did not appoint crown Ishbosheth until maybe five years into David's reign. David was reigning in Hebron over Judah for five years. And I think it's after some point, after five years of time, David was king, he was, he was growing in his kingship, he was, I'm sure things were going well, and Abner was thinking, all right, we're hearing, I'm sure he's hearing about Judah, hearing about David, five years go by, and he said, we need to do something, and let's anoint, let's crown, after five years, Ishbosheth over Israel, all of Israel, okay, I think that's exactly what the narrator wants to see, we'll see Abner, Abner's, Abner's a tricky fox, he's, he's, He's got, we'll see him in the next two weeks. But because of his character, I believe that he was concerned about his position. You remember Abner was the the right-hand man. He was the commander of the army over Saul's army. And he had to be thinking, this is, something may happen. I may lose my rightful place as commander. Let's grab Saul's son and make him king because I'm going to lose my place. I'm going to lose that place of power, that place of authority. And what Abner is willing to do, and we'll see as the, as the text goes on, what Abner is willing to do is divide God's people. He causes division in the people of God so that he could stay in power. Unfortunately, not here. But unfortunately, that's the problem in churches today. There's divisions, there's factions over things that are, 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 are uh, in the way in people's personal preferences or authority that they want to have and the power they want to have, whether it's families, whether it's individuals that have been there, and they want to divide churches so they could stay in their authority, they could stay in their power. Sometimes division takes place in a church over serious matters that need to, but what's the motive? 
I think Abner's motive here is to cause division so that he can stay in the position in which he was doing for a long period of time. And we don't know what David was doing in Judah, but we do know David a little bit by now. We do know that David, while he's five years in Judah, I believe because of what has been going on, David was waiting patiently on the Lord. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that because David had an opportunity to kill Saul twice, to take the kingdom by force twice, to step up to what God has promised twice on his own merit, on his own ways, and his own, and his own authority, and he didn't do it. So we don't hear much what's going on, but I believe David is waiting those five years. He's waiting on the Lord. And we see the narrator now picking up after five years. He's, David is king over Judah, and now Abner anoints Isbasheth over the rest of Israel. And now we have a problem. Now we have allegiance to two factions, divisions, within the people of God. There's a civil war that is about to take place. David, God's chosen king, Ishbosheth, Abner's chosen king, and now we have a domestic conflict. In fact, the next three chapters, two, three, and four, two, there's a murder we'll see today of Asahel, three, murder of Abner, four, the murder of Ishbosheth. Sorry if you don't know that. Chapter five, David becomes king over all of Israel. So there's a lot of rivalries going on. There's a, there's a squaring off. There's a, there, there's a, a, a civil war going on within God's people. It reminded me of the, the Jets and the Sharks. Some of you older folks remember that, right? Upper West Side. They're not going to be dancing here, but there's this rivalry. Something else I want you to notice too. Abner and the men of Israel, verse 12, tell us that they went from where they stayed at a place called Mahanaim, I got to keep saying that, I guess. Um, and they go to, they go, they go from where they were on the east side of the Jordan River, and they're going to Hebron, down to Judah. Now, let me see if I can do this. Ricky showed me this morning. Okay, so, you can see the map. Now, Saul's son and Abner are right over here. Okay. Pretty cool, huh? You could thank, thank Ricky, yeah. Right under where that circle is. I didn't get exactly where, but right under that circle. So that's on the east side of the Jordan. You can see the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and then the Sea of Galilee. Now, Judah, where David is, is over here. All right? Pretty good, huh? So... You could see they're hanging out there on the west side of the Dead Sea, and they're, not, they're minding their business. Abner and his army go from the east side, and they're coming down toward Jeru- Judah. So you can see who the aggressor is. They didn't meet halfway. It wasn't Judah going up to them. They came down to where David was. All right, now, if I can go back, I'd be really good. Okay. That's important because the aggressor here is Abner. The aggressor here is the armies of the 11 tribes. They're coming and marching on Judah. Judah hears about them and meets them a little bit outside of their area, but still the aggressor here we know is Abner. He's the aggressor, right? Geography doesn't lie. And he is going to be, Abner is going to be a key actor in this battle. 
And, and I, I think it's essential that we understand who the aggressor is. But regardless, I want you to sense this is the people of God. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is not the enemies of God. This is, this is a conflict within the people of God. I want you to feel that. It's sad. It's very sad. They're armed against each other. They're supposed to be united under one God who's king. Creator of us all, one people, and here they're fighting. And Abner, I think, is the rebel. I think he's guilty of mutiny against God's people because he wants to establish his own kingdom and anoint his own king rather than submit to King David. Had Abner, as we move forward, had Abner submitted to the will of God, has submitted to the promise of God, if he had just followed the direction of God, all of this, which we will read, would not have happened. But Abner is concerned about himself. Abner is concerned with his loyalty to himself, his loyalty to Saul, not his loyalty to God. Right? God rejected Saul. God established David, and and Abner doesn't want to hear it. He was a man of selfish ambition, selfish desires. He's motivated by himself, and that's what happens here. Now also, let me put one more thing in context. Abner, if you remember, if you've been tracking with us, chapter 26, I believe, Abner was the guy who was with Saul in the camp, sleeping. David sneaks in, sneaks in with somebody else, takes the spear in the water, remember, while they're all asleep, goes to the other side of the hill and yells, hey, Abner, who's that? It's David. I got the spear. I got his water, man. You got one job to do, and you failed. Remember that story? So Abner's not wonderfully in love with David, I don't think, either. That's part of what's going on. He mocks him. You should have watched the king. So while David is waiting on God, waiting in Judah, Abner shows up down by the area where David is. And David sends Joab, an army, to the pool. Now, you may be thinking of your pool. That's not what this is. This is 35, 37 feet long. It was, it was uh, actually in the 1950s it was found. It's 35 feet, 37 feet deep. It's, it's a giant pool. It was a place where rainwater would collect. Um, they go to this pool, and we learn that Joab is the commander. Look with me at verse 18. Joab is the commander of David's army. So Abner meets Joab at the pool. What's interesting, and again, you need to know, is that Joab was the nephew of David. Verse 18. The three sons of Zeruah, who is David's sister, David's, uh, no, no, David's uh, sister of King David. So David had a sister, it's Zeruah, and she had three children. So it's David's sister's kids, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. That's in order of, of age. That's the way they did it right then. So that's their nephews. His nephews are there. One of his nephews, the oldest one, Joab, is commander of his army. And they meet at the pool and Abner suggests, look what he says, why should, a, why should a full-scale war break out? Let us do this. Let's pick 12 men to fight each other and sort of a, of a contest rather than a war, right? A substitution, some sort of competition. You see what he says? Let them compete, verse 14, with each other. And let's find out who is going to be king. Sort of reminiscent of, of David and Goliath, you remember? Let, let your best man come out and we'll, we'll wait and see who wins. And what's interesting in that word, um, compete, is a Hebrew word that is used to jest. 
uh, laugh or, or entertainment. I think at first they're wondering, let's, let, there's kind of a, um, a sense of uh, adjusting. This, this should be fun. So they sit by the pool, you know, they go to get their popcorn, to get their jelly beans, they're getting their sodas, they're all going to sit by the pool, 12 guys face each other, and th- this should be entertaining. This should be fun, right? You heard the old saying, right? It's always fun until somebody gets hurt. I don't know if you heard that. I heard a lot growing up. Verse 16, each one caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together, all 24. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, field of stone, a sharp edge, which is at Gibeon. And then the narrated verse 7 tells us what, kind of gives us a glimpse of what happened the rest of the day. The battle was fierce, and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. What a tragedy. God's people trying to take control over God's people turn and kill each other, slaughter each other, 24 dead soldiers by the poolside. You know, there's a right and a wrong way to do things. There's a right and wrong way to become king of Israel. There's a right and wrong way for the people of God to fill the purposes and the plans of God in our own lives. Even when the world or should I say, particularly when the world wants us to go in one way, its system telling us to do it this way. The people of God need to stand firm, where? On the truth of God, the word of God. It was in the garden that Eve recognized that the forbidden fruit would make her wise and be like God. <laughs> the Bible says she, Adam and Eve were created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. They are as much as like God as creatures could be. But they accepted the serpent's lie, his, his view of reality, and he believed that they could forge a better way. They knew better than God, the plans of God and the ways of God. Years later, Abraham was given a promise, and that promise included a son. Did he wait? No. He had another son first. His name is Ishmael. There's been war ever since. And like Adam and Eve and like Abraham, Abner was loyal to himself. And that led to rebellion. Like Adam and Eve, like Abraham, Abner rebelled against God. He refused to submit. And too often we, we take things and matters into our own hands as well. Don't we? And sometimes rather than waiting on God, not knowing what to do, not sure we want to push the hand of God. We want to, 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 to try to work the providence of God out in our own lives. And many times, if we're honest, when we do that, we find ourselves in deeper trouble. We find ourselves making a mess of things. I know I did. So aren't you glad that David is not the ultimate king? Aren't you glad that another king will come? Someone who was promised, who would, who would pray fervently in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And when faced with trial... When faced with difficulties, when faced with hardship, when he was faced with the cup, metaphor of wrath and death, Jesus did not go ahead of the plan of God, did not go ahead of the purpose of his Father. He chose to follow the direction of his God. And Jesus in his prayer affirms his resolve around the Father's will, not my will, thy will be done. 
Jesus didn't choose his path alone. Jesus chose to follow the Father's will. Jesus chose his divine mission according to the purposes and plans of which he was sent. Even Jesus, though, was tempted, was he not, in Matthew 4? Bow your knee to me, Satan said. I'll give you this kingdom. Now. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to uh, bore the wrath. You can have the kingdom today, right now. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Jesus, the divine mission, he's the true son of God, accomplished salvation not through his own ambition, his own authority and power, but submission to his father's will and didn't go to a throne and sat as a king, but went to a cross and died for us. Jesus submitted to the plan, the purpose of God, because he trusted the father's plan. That's the question, family, this morning. Do you trust the father's plan? Do you understand that God is trustworthy and faithful and loving? Do you trust the Father's plan? The challenge. Look at the chase, verse 18. 24 dead people. And the three sons of Zeruah were there, Joab, Abashai, and Asahel. Now Asahel, we find a little something about him. He's swift. Swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, okay? There's a pursuit. Israel's on the run. And as he went, he, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left hand after following after Abner, verse 20. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel wouldn't turn. He didn't, he didn't turn aside from following him. Abner said to him again, verse 22, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused. Asahel refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach and the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back. He fell there and died, you think? And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. The narrator doesn't give us a whole lot of information about that day, but he does give us this. It's a very interesting story. You got to wonder, I know it did. As I was studying this, I read this text over and over this week. I don't know how many times, but what is Abner trying to do? What is Asahel trying to do? Uh, What were the motives here? You know, was, was, was Abner uh, out, of, out, of, out of pride saying, listen, I could take you out at any time? Was Asahel looking to, to better himself? He's the younger brother. Let me take out the command. Let me show him how smart I am, how, how fast I am. Was Abner showing off how tough he was? Listen, go pick on someone your own size. He tells him the first time, listen, pipsqueak, take another kid out. Take, take his spoil. You had no match for me. He tells him a second time, don't do this. I don't want to harm you because I'm going to face your brother. We are brothers here. Asahel doesn't listen. And the blunt of the spear, I read somewhere that the blunt, the, the, the back end of the spear could have some shape to it. I don't know. All I know is it must, he must have stopped short. I don't know. Maybe it was self-defense. I don't know. But the spear goes right through him and he's dead. And this gruesome sight, sorry if you haven't eaten breakfast, or maybe sorry if you did eat breakfast, but this gruesome sight before everybody, they know this man, David's army stops. The narrator says they just stopped and looked. 
at this gruesome sight. Every man stopped and came to that place. They recognized him. They knew him. And they knew, let me tell you, 24 dead is one thing, but they knew this army, this war, excuse me, this civil war, just took another step in a very disastrous direction. They're shocked. Ralph David in his commissary, Ralph Davis in his commentary writes this, Asahel had the speed, but Abner had the spear. All right? There's a lot of blame to go around. The young soldier should have listened. Rather than trying to prove himself, he should have backed off. But if Abner had not pursued David, if he had not done this in the first place, as I mentioned, none of this would happen. Abner is older. Abner is wiser. Abner is stronger. Abner, I'm totally confident, knew what God had said to Saul. Abner knew what God had declared his sovereign will over Israel, who would be king. Here he is again, trying to fight the sovereign plan and purposes of God and thinks he's going to win. Sometimes, again, I find myself like that as well. I can't tell you the number of people I've spoken to who are misplacing their stress, anxiety over trying to change things that they cannot change. It adds to so much stress and anxiety in their lives. Young people today, stressed out, not knowing what the future will hold. It's not our job to change people. It's not our job to control people. Playing God, trying to work his providence by your own power and strength and arranging things in your life the way you want them to do, uh, be will kill you in the long run. I love the serenity prayer. Paul Neuhold, neighbor, an American, uh, he passed, I believe, an American uh, Reformed theologian said it like this. I love this prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Lord, let me be comfortable. Let me understand there are some things and some people, all things really, and all people, I cannot change. God, grant me the serenity and the courage to change the things I can. What's my responsibility? And wisdom, Lord, to know the difference. And he goes on. You've heard that probably before. Living one day at a time, he writes. So, grant me the serenity, accept the things I cannot change. Grant me the serenity, the courage to things, change the things I can. Wisdom, know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, Taking as God did, Jesus did, this sinful world as it is. Not as I would have it. Trusting that God will make all things right if I surrender to his will. That I may be reasonably joyful or happy in this life. And supremely happy, joyful with him forever in the next. Amen. That's a great prayer. But I don't think Abner's the only one that teaches us. I think, I think the young man teaches us something as well, right? I, I do. I, I think another principle we draw on, and it's this. You could be extremely ambitious. You could be full of energy, ambitious, ambitious, willing to work toward a particular conclusion, but you may lack wisdom and experience, and that may get you in trouble. I relate to that. 
right? When I first came here, I, you know, I, was, I had good intentions. I still do, but I, I, wanted, I wanted to do a good job for the Lord. I wanted to serve God's people well, and I was plenty of good intentions, but there were some things I lacked wisdom in. That's why I'm glad I had Perry Jones around. I lacked the wisdom. I, I, I had the strength. I had the, the, Bill Blake will tell you, I don't know if he's here today, but perpetual motion, right? You're like, you're, I'm just always going. But you know what? <laughs> you can get in trouble that way too. You're perpetually getting in trouble all the time. Right? Jumping into things that you're not really sure of and, and you, and you want to do the right thing. But you know what? You're lacking the wisdom. You're lacking the, the, the temperament to actually do things properly. And you wind up in trouble. Because you need experience. I think that's what this young man, he don't have the experience. He, he's running after Abner. Abner could take him out, and he's not paying him no mind. Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith God has assigned. We need to be humble. Where are we at in this life? We've got to be honest. Unlike the young lady that stepped up on a coin-operated, one of those coin things that tells you you're waiting and spits out a card. You ever see them at the fairs? It tells you a little bit something about yourself. And she got on the scale, popped the card out, handed it to her husband, said, look at this. And he looked at it and said, you're, you're, you're the most beautiful, gifted woman in the entire world. You have compassion and love for others. And he looked at it, gave it back to her and said, yeah, I got your weight wrong too. But... I picked on guys first. I got to pick on the ladies second. All right. The concession. We have to be humble. And I I think Abner teaches us we can't control. And I think uh, the young man running teaches us that we have to be honest with where we are. The concession, verse 24. But Joab and Apishar pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together. Remember, they're on the run. Now they're gathering themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be? Before you tell your people to turn from their pursuit of their brothers. So Joab, his middle, his, his brother who's next to him in line is age-wise, is going after Abner, right? They just killed the younger son, the younger brother. There are three boys. The younger one was just murdered, and they're going to do what men do. They're, gonna, they're going to go after Abner and take him out. Vengeance for the death of their youngest brother. And Joab and Abishai are close behind them. They're chasing them eastward. In other words, I don't, have the, I don't have the map up right now. What's going on is Abner is heading back home. He's heading northeast. These two men and the army are chasing after him. That's what's happening. And as they get to this place, although they had just had some victory, they just, they just won some, some battle. Obviously, they're in retreat. The, the men of, of Abner's army, which is Ishbosheth, Israel's army, is on top of the hill. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And there's a bunch of Benjamites there. There are a bunch of people standing with him there, with Abner. And there's sort of like a, a, a stop, a stalemate for a moment. Here is Judah. Here is, here is uh, uh, Joab, his army, on the bottom of the hill. And there is Ishbosheth's army, run by Abner, on the top. And there's a stalemate. And then he yells, Abner yells, verse 26. 
Joab, should, should this conflict and bloodshed be allowed? Are we going to do this forever? Question one. Question two, it's going to end bitterly. If we keep this up, it's going to end bitterly. Question number three, verse 26. It's a family conflict. Are we going to keep going on? In verse 14, he's like, Let, let's fight it out. Now, all of a sudden, Abner's saying, hey, hold on, truce. Can, can we have some sort of concession here? He's the aggressor. Abner's the aggressor. I don't believe, you guys can talk about this in community group, I don't believe these three questions were asked in a sense where he really cared about Israel. I don't think so. You read next chapter two. I think, I think that Abner was asking these questions because he was in a place of things are getting really bad here. We're not in a good way. And you know what? I know we got the hill. I know we got some people, but I'm not sure how this is going to end out. So I'm going to try to say everything I possibly can to make this stop. That's what I think. He cared only for himself. He's just looking to gain favor in the house of David. Calvin writes, Abner was praiseworthy in many ways. However, we see that he was disloyal so that his excellence was contaminated and was nothing less than rotten. Got to love Calvin, right? Abner, definitely a mixed bag. When you pick a fight, then you're on the run, and then you find yourself in somewhat of a hopeless situation, you ask the question, this has got to stop. I, again, I don't think it was out of generosity and kindness. Verse 27, Joab responds and says to him, as God lives, do I have 27 up there? Yeah. As God lives, if you had not spoken, so Joab is talking up, to the hill. If you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. Now, there are two ways to interpret that. Some of your verse, some of your translations might have it a little bit differently. There's two ways to understand that, ver- that sentence in the original language. One could mean, one of it could be interpreted this way. If you, if you, Joab talking to Abner, if you had not had this competition early in the morning, we wouldn't be in this situation. This is all your fault. This is all your fault. If you haven't said what you said by the pool this morning, we wouldn't be in this mess. That's one way to interpret that verse. The ESV has it uh, differently. The ESV has it that Abner is yelling down to Joab saying, and Joab's coming back and saying, if you had not said what you said on that mountaintop down to us, we would have took you out. But either way, right? I mean, either way, whatever's being spoken, Joab at the moment says, you know what? Cease. We'll stop this. Whether it's your fault you started this or you're lucky you said something because we were going to take you out. Either way, look at verse 28 with me. He blows the trumpet. As a signaling that the war is over, stop pursuing, let's stop the fighting. And we have ceasefire for the moment. A truce, a compromise, a concession. Verse 29. And Abner's men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, marched the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. Verse 30, Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Asahel. They'll make 20 all together. Verse 31, the servants of David had struck down Benjamin, 360 of Abner's men. So again, Abner's heading north. East, Joab going south. They turn around. How many men are missing? 20 from us, 360 from you. Abner's the loser. Israel run by King Abisheth and Commander Abner. 
is the biggest loser. But we'll see next week. Asahel's brothers are not letting go of this. There may be some concession, there may be a truce, but it ain't over. And we shall see one of the deepest wounds were the wounds of bitterness and hatred of Joab and his brothers. Few things will destroy a church, few things will destroy a family than hatred toward one another. It will eat you alive. Saul's house, chapter 3, verse 1, will get weaker. David's house will grow stronger. Look at verse 32 to close. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. They went to Bethlehem, house of bread. Approximately halfway down the journey, as they're heading from Gibeon, to Gibeah to Hebron, and they stop at Bethlehem. Again, David's family from Bethlehem. Remember, it's his nephew that is dead and needs to be buried, and they bury him with his family. And it's going to get worse. Wars, even civil wars, hatred are a product of this fallen, sinful world. We see it all around us. It doesn't matter who's in power. It does not matter who's in power. Kings, dictators, parliaments, presidents of a a a democratic republic, political parties will never, ever, ever give us the hope we all want. They'll always fall short. We're simply not good enough. We're not wise enough as a people to make human communities live in peace together. If you place your hopes in that... System, if you place your hopes in education, if you place your hope in progressive ideas, you will be, we will be disappointed. The Bible has the answer as to why this is so. It's because of sin. Because of sin, we are not good enough, wise enough, or strong enough to build communities that always get along, that prosper in peace. Our only realistic hope is the kingdom of God. That's our only hope. And notice where the story ends. The story ends with the burial in Bethlehem. God's kingdom comes to Bethlehem. Bethlehem would would be another way in which we are signaling toward the king of kings. For years later, after 2 Samuel 2, a son of David would be born in Bethlehem. He is the king whom David would only dimly foreshadow. Our policies, our plans, our concessions, suggestions are no more able to bring peace and harmony, justice and righteousness than all the efforts of Abner and Joab. Don't be surprised. The best we can offer will always accomplish less than we hoped for. Only when God establishes kingdom through King Jesus will we know the peace, the joy, the love, the unity that we long for. Only when we remember Bethlehem, the house of bread, the ultimate bread of life, that we can pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. The Bible's message that God has promised a king, a king who is wise, all wise, all understanding, a just judge who will rule in righteousness and faithfulness. He will bring unity. He will succeed. He will bring perfect peace. He will bring complete unity. He will not just bring us into one nation. He will 
completely renew all creation. And we know that that's true because the king has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes on the king and he's calling people everywhere to change their direction, to repent from sin and come to King Jesus. Mark chapter one. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried in the grave and three days rose victorious over the grave, over sin, over death. And God's anointed King David as we know, is from the tribe of Judah. He is from Bethlehem, but again, pointing to another one, born in Bethlehem, who also is from the tribe of Judah. Family, I'm gonna read one more scripture verse, and we're gonna continue to worship in music, but I want you to see this. This is a mess. It's gonna get messier. Even out of this mess, even out of this brokenness, even out of this war, God is sovereign. And God's good providences ultimately in Jesus Christ will come out of this mess. I don't care what you're going through. I don't know what all of you are going through, but I know one thing. Even in the mess you're in, Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, died an atoning death, rose from the grave, and is calling all of us to come to him, to act Knowledge our sin, to turn from our sin, and to trust and believe on him alone. Revelation 5. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open up the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy of opening up the scrolls of all of eternity? No one is in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And I, John, the apostle, began to weep. No one was found to, to open or to look at the scroll. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went, he took the scroll, King Jesus from the line of, uh, line of Judah, from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb in worship and holding a harp and golden bowls are full of incense which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you, King Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and your blood, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Praise you, Lord God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that David is not the ultimate king. Thank you that David, although uh, it was in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is the ultimate king. He is the one worthy of our worship. He is the one worthy of opening the seals. He is the one worthy of establishing an eternal kingdom where righteousness will reign and rule. When all the brokenness of this world, the sinfulness of my own heart, 
will be changed, will be glorified. All human hearts, Lord, have that desire. It's built in us. So, Father, I pray, we pray, that there's someone here that does not know, love, treasure, and run to Jesus, you, by the work of your Spirit, will show them their sin and show them the beauty and glory of Christ at all that he has done. And help us, Lord, we pray, to worship in singing for your glory, together, in faith, trusting you, believing, resting, and worshiping the King of Kings, we pray in Jesus' name.